salt is always a popular topic among ASN members, generating interest across a wide range of issues. In this episode of the Kidney News Podcast, NEFSAP Editor-in-Chief Stanley Goldfarb, MD, speaks with ASN about salt and kidney care. Dr. Goldfarb, thank you for joining us. Sure. My pleasure. Salt is a topic that generates a great deal of interest among your colleagues on ASN social media sites such as Facebook and Twitter. Why do you think this is? I think that any time that a study or a topic relates to diet, the public in general and physicians as well get incredibly interested in these issues. I know in my own experience, I've been interested in water drinking, and when I published some articles on that, it elicited a huge response. I was actually cited more on Reuters' website during the last presidential campaign. I had higher hits than President Obama did, just because it was something about the amount of water one needed to take in. I think it's partly because patients have the sense that they can you know, control their health in part through their diet. I think this is often overstated, but nonetheless, it's a very important uh, impulse that people have, and I think it has to do with the ability to, to exert some control over one's one's health and do it in a way that seems absent of pharmacologic manipulation and so on. So I think that's why. I think the public is really intensely interested in, in diet and its effects on health, and therefore I think our colleagues take that cue from their patients. Do your colleagues still question you about your water research? Oh, yes. I, I, I still get lots of requests from various publications, particularly women's health publications. They seem to be particularly interested in this issue. And I even have some dialogue with my colleagues about this periodically, yes. Kidney disease presents special challenges. Can you provide an overview of the relationship between increased sodium load, increased blood pressure, and proteinuria? There are a few studies that have shown that when one combines reductions in sodium intake with pharmacologic therapy of hypertension, there seems to be better long-term outcome for patients with kidney disease, particularly proteinuric diseases. And it's known that one when puts patients on low-sodium diet that the um, proteinuria is ameliorated in addition to whatever effects that medications have. And this effect may even be greater than using coexistent diuretics. It, it may very well be that that's the basis for the observation that low-salt diets are beneficial to patients with kidney disease, not only because of potential for making their blood pressure more easy to control, but also because they tend to be antiproteinuric. Now, exactly what the mechanism of that effect is in is not terribly clear, but maybe through pathways that sodium can signal various aspects of kidney function as well as just the hemodynamic effects of having somewhat lower blood pressure. What salt-specific information are nephrologists most surprised to learn about? I think there are two aspects of that question that are worthy of comment. First is where all this salt comes from. And as it turns out, most of this excess salt that people ingest is the result of processed foods. It's not the result of eating natural foods, and it's not the result of adding salt to food during cooking. It's the result of having this very high intake of processed foods, the canned foods, dried foods, or you know, virtually anything that's on the shelf that doesn't need to be continuously refrigerated is going to have a high salt content. There are a couple of reasons for this. One is the fact that salt is a, a preservative and does uh, keep food with much longer shelf lives. And secondly is because we do seem to like salty foods and there is a desire to uh, ingest these foods. 
So I think that's the first part is that people are surprised that it has to do with eating processed foods of one sort or another. I think the other thing that colleagues particularly don't appreciate, uh, I'll put it that way, is how confusing our terminology is about salt. So we describe salt intake in several different ways. We talk about it as sodium intake. We talk about it as salt intake. We talk about it in milliequivalent terms. We talk about it in weight terms, in milligram terms. I think that one of the things that we really can do to help our patients and help ourselves is to have one standard terminology for how we talk about salt. And I think we should talk about salt. I don't think we should talk about sodium because we can take sodium in in, in various forms, and, and I can talk about that a bit later. I think we need to talk about our sodium chloride intake and talk about it as grams of sodium chloride, as grams of salt. For example, uh, if we talk about it as grams of sodium, one gram of sodium is 44 milliequivalents, whereas one gram of sodium chloride is 17 milliequivalents of sodium, whereas one gram of, of sodium, when we talk about sodium alone, is 40 more milliequivalents of sodium. So depending on terms that are used to describe a diet, we can have vastly different amounts of sodium that we're taking in. And again, I think it's important that we speak about sodium chloride. And the reason I say that is because we know from recent data that giving patients incremental amounts of sodium bicarbonate turns out to be very beneficial for patients that have chronic kidney disease. We know that restoring their bicarbonate levels from a low level up to 22 milliequivalents per liter has been associated with much better long-term uh, clinical outcomes. Reasons for that are totally unclear. Well, not totally, but, but somewhat unclear. But the point is that taking sodium in as sodium bicarbonate seems to be a good thing, whereas taking in extra sodium as sodium chloride seems to be a bad thing. So I think that we would do our patients a great service, and, and I think that the standards that are being developed ought to be developed, and we should talk to our patients about grams of salt as sodium chloride is the, the way we describe the limits that we ask them to go on. Are there any other semantical problems with salt terminology that you would like to highlight? No, I think that's really the big issue. I, I would call, and, and others have made such a call for standard terminology that students are, are taught and that our patients are, are instructed, because when they look on labels, they need to know what it is they're looking for if they're going to identify how much salt that they're ingesting. And again, it is really the salt that's, that's the key issue, not simply the sodium alone. For people on dialysis, what effect does dietary salt have on their treatment? As one ingests more salt, two things happen. One is there's a stimulation to thirst, so patients will tend to drink the fluid in order to deal with the increase in salt concentration in their extracellular fluid as they ingest the salt. So that will lead to increased fluid intake, and because they've ingested it as salt, that fluid will exist in the extracellular fluid space which means in the plasma space, which means that their blood pressures are going to tend to be high. So what we have in patients on dialysis, of course, is the need to regulate the amount of fluid that they ingest during treatment, and that predominantly ends up being a need to regulate the amount of salt because the salt intake will drive the fluid intake to a great extent. Exceptions, of course, are hot environments, excessive physical activity where there may be more pure water losses. But for the most part, the problem is Salt intake drives water intake, which drives fluid expansion, which then, of course, drives hypertension, which leads to a greater need for 
fluid removal during dialysis treatments, which makes for more difficult treatments for many patients. So the need to control salt intake is, is quite important in dialysis patients. And as far as the chronic kidney failure patients, there is a reasonable amount of data. It's not perfect and it's not, it's not long-term, and I don't think it would satisfy requirements to represent an absolute evidence, that grade 1A sort of evidence. But there is evidence that higher salt intakes tend to be associated with worse progression of, of renal disease. There are some interesting exceptions to that. It may be in diabetic patients. There are some studies that suggest that, in fact, higher salt intakes are somewhat protective. But I think in any of these studies that one looks at the effect of, of diet on outcomes, one really has to look very carefully at the population of patients being studied. Very, very sick patients, it's probably not much of an issue. In very, very healthy patients, it's probably not going to be much of an issue. But in, a, in some cohorts of patients with particular kinds of kidney disease, for example, diabetes, there may be a group in whom there, there's great sensitivity to salt intake and, and, and hypertension and, and a negative impact on the progression of their kidney disease. What can you tell our listeners about the role of dietary salt in promoting the development of glomerular and tubular interstitial fibrosis? Yeah, this is an interesting area of recent research, and it has to do with what the effects of high salt intake might be on various pathways that may be called into play in response to the high salt intake. So, for example, one interesting hypothesis about the way salt intake raises blood pressure is that the salt in high salt intake actually gets into the into the central nervous system, into the spinal fluid, and causes the release of various centrally acting factors, such as wobbing-like substances that are produced in the brain, and may influence the ability of the kidney to retain salt and help increase salt excretion. These wobbing-like substances also are steroid hormones and may act to increase tissue fibrosis just the way we now know that aldosterone, which is another steroid hormone, obviously, can act to increase tissue fibrosis. And there are many other pathways that have been implicated that, that are activated when there's increased sodium chloride salt intake. There are some guanosine triphosphatase pathways that have been activated. There's uh, some endothelial growth factors that have been found to be activated in experimental animals when they're, they're fed high salt diets. And, of course, we know that there's an important pathway that's actually suppressed by high-salt diets, and that's the renin-angiotensin system, but which is activated by very low-salt diets. And there are some interesting data to suggest that there's an optimum salt intake that, in some studies, individuals on a very high-salt diet, but then again, individuals on a very, very low-salt diet seem to have increased cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. And it may very well be that a very low-salt diet is not the ticket simply because it may activate hormones that have their own potential adverse influences on, on uh, tissue fibrosis. But on the other hand, very high-salt intakes may also have the same effect. This has led to the view that you know moderation is probably the optimum goal here, and it probably is something on the order of a, uh, a diet that has something on the order of 5 grams of salt as the optimum diet, which equals about 85 milliequivalents of sodium or a two-gram sodium diet, if, if that unfortunate complicated terminology uh, remains. When you work with young kidney professionals, how do you advise them to assess and manage sodium load in their kidney patients? I talk to them about 
this issue of telling their patients to avoid processed foods, I think that represents about 75 or so percent of the extra salt intake that patients are exposed to. And therefore, that's the simplest way to urge patients to avoid excess salt intake. And I think that has two benefits. One is if they're going to avoid processed foods and, and to a certain extent foods in restaurants, which also tend to have rather high salt intake, they're probably going to eat a diet that's going to allow them to control their body weight more easily. And that, of course, raises the whole question of the obesity epidemic and the impact there. So to me, the issue ought to be to promote patients preparing their foods freshly and and eating fresh foods. That gets into the issue of making sure that communities have access to such kinds of foods. And that represents an important part of health disparities because if it were easy for patients to get to supermarkets that were stocked with fresh foods, and if these foods were easily affordable in the supermarket, that would go a long way to having our patients avoid developing obesity or maintaining obesity, as well as being able to maintain sodium intakes that would optimize their care. So that is the thing I stress the most. That's the straightforward thing. The other thing I tend to talk about it are some of the uncertainties about salt intake and and we've mentioned a few of them. One of the big issues is whether the whole story is related to the chloride, as I've mentioned before, whether there's a, an important role for the anion associated with sodium in this story. And the other question is whether some of the adverse effects we see have to do with the fact that a high salt diet tends to be a relatively low potassium diet. Now, potassium and kidney disease are another set of complicated issues because certainly our patients that have advanced kidney disease, we're trying to avoid hyperkalemia as a potential risk factor for uh, morbidity and maybe even mortality. But patients with less severe forms of chronic kidney disease that retain some level of glomerular filtration rate, being on a relatively high potassium, relatively low sodium or salt diet may really be quite beneficial. And there are studies which suggest that it's the ratio between potassium and sodium that's, that's crucial. So I, I tend to talk about those two aspects, the source of food is a key issue that we don't teach and we don't learn very much about nutrition, unfortunately. But I think here is a very important role for nutrition education and nutrition counseling of patients. And the second issue is some of the uncertainties around these studies and the other variables such as the anion and such as the role of the relative amounts of dietary sodium and potassium in maintaining optimal patient care. In your opinion, What's the most interesting research being conducted in the area of sodium and kidney medicine? Well, I think it's always good when we get at biological mechanisms, and I think that area is probably the most interesting at this point. And there are studies that are, I mean, they're interesting patient-related studies, but again, most of those studies represent observational studies. And I always caution, there's another thing, I caution my colleagues about that observational studies can only generate hypotheses they can never prove causality. So no matter how wonderfully designed the statistical analysis is for an observational study, that's a, a truth that cannot be overcome by any sort of statistical manipulation. So I'm sure there are a lot of interesting clinical trials that are ongoing. I don't think we're going to see a large long-term clinical trial of dietary sodium or dietary salt changes that in which the parameter is really well controlled over many, many years, which it wouldn't really need to be in order to make the study definitive. On the other hand, I think some of the animal studies 
where mechanism is being pursued, where this role of Wabin-like factors, where the role of various pathways that are stimulated by uh, sodium chloride intake that I, I mentioned earlier, I think these are really important because they do potentially lend themselves to pharmacologic manipulation over the long term. And certainly, if they're clarified, they will help us be certain of the reality of the potential role of salt intake in the progression of various diseases. So I, I think that's the area that I, I find the most interesting. In 2006, the World Health Organization recommended sodium intake to be reduced by 20%. If that goal is achieved, what difference would it make in global health? The numbers about that are, are sort of staggering. Is an assessment that if we reduced our salt intake in the country by 50%, then we might see something on the order of 150,000 fewer deaths a year. It's hard to um, imagine that that we'd have such an impact. But in, in studies in which we see a reduction of salt intake and a reduction of blood pressure by anywhere from four to seven millimeters of mercury, those kinds of changes are associated with, with important changes in cardiovascular outcomes. So the numbers are, are large simply because they represent large changes in a, a very commonly observed complication in the population, which is hypertension. Most of the benefit is in cardiovascular effects, and, you know, they, they talk about reductions in stroke, for example, of anywhere from 15 to, to 20 percent. That's a huge uh, reduction in, in a, just a horribly uh, morbid condition. So I think if the projections are correct, and it is a big if, that all of these uh, effects would be reduced in large populations of patients by altering uh, salt intake then these numbers are quite impressive. And again, since the source of this extra salt intake are foods that are produced in commercial enterprises, either through prepared foods or in restaurants, it does raise the possibility of being able to regulate some of this. And it may very well be that modest reductions in the amount of salt that are, are added to foods to preserve them Apparently, much more salt is added to foods than is necessary for the preservation aspect of, of high uh, salt content of foods. It, it's Much more of it is done for taste. If the taste could be preserved by fairly modest reductions in salt intake, then we would potentially have a, a no-cost benefit to a standard for the, the food industry. I'm sure there's, there may be a cost, in, an economic cost, to reducing salt intake by salt manufacturing and so on, but nonetheless, it would seem like there is a, a more modest goal than absolutely eliminating salt. As we said, that's not a good idea. It would make foods less tasty, and it also might not even produce health benefits. But it would seem that a, a sort of modest reductions in the salt content of prepared foods would allow some benefit here, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good here. There are some deeper ideological and political questions about salt. Should individuals have the option to eat foods that may add a significant risk of a cardiovascular complication? Should manufacturers be able to make food that satisfy their customers even with the risks described? In your opinion, what should the policy focus be moving forward? Unfortunately, this gets into the area of the, the nanny state. And there are both ideological and practical considerations here that come into play. On one hand, we don't want 
individuals to feel that every aspect of their lives, their diet, are being intruded upon by a government entity that thinks it's acting in their interest when, in fact, it may or may not be totally acting in their interest. And certainly, we want people to understand that they have individual choice in what diet they consume. On the other hand, I think we do have certain public standards that we've enacted because it's become clear that certain activities are detrimental to the public's health. Smoking is one pretty obvious one where we've enacted a number of standards that I think have been generally well accepted by the population that understands that these are activities that really are not only detrimental to their their health, cost the public huge amounts of money, and uh, may be detrimental to others that they hold dear, like their spouses and children and so on. So we have this dilemma. Now, what's the solution to it? I think the solution is first education. I think if you convince the public the way it was convinced about cigarette smoking that you have an activity that has such detrimental effects that it really is worth the government making efforts to reduce the activity. Unfortunately, you need to really have, I think, stronger proof than we have about salt intake at this point to make it on that approach. And I think some governmental entities, I think New York City has put in some efforts this way, and it's really led to a fair amount of pushback and it's sort of fallen back to an approach where the, the salt content of food is indicated as opposed to uh, limitations on the amount of salt that can be used in foods. I think the other approach is the, um, the so-called nudge approach, where you try to create uh, situations where a choice is seized upon by individuals that tend to have a, an outcome that you would prefer. How to achieve this? It may be creating foods that taste nearly as good as foods that are more salty but, but have a, a different chemical element that produces the taste. And I think that's a, a very useful approach. It's a technological solution to this potential problem. So I, I think it is an important issue, and I don't think we should just blindly ignore the interests of patients in having a diet that they find the most uh, palatable. I think we should educate individuals when we have really good data to support the educational effort. And I think we should try to convince companies that if they can create foods that retain the taste that they think will allow them to, to sell their products successfully but yet have somewhat lower salt content, that that would be quite useful. So in other words, there ought to be an optimum amount of salt and make sure that they don't exceed that. I think those kinds of perhaps baby steps combined with more observational research and uh, more trying to elucidate underlying biological mechanisms of how salt might produce these effects would would justify, you know, stronger governmental action at some point. But I think at this point, it ought to be more trying to convince uh, restaurants and companies that produce prepared foods that they ought to try to limit the salt intake without destroying the quality of the food that they're producing. Dr. Goldfarb, thank you for joining us. Sure. My pleasure. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.